All right. <clears throat> Grab a pew Bible. I didn't look up the numbers today, so you're going to have to kind of move along with me and look them up yourselves in the pew Bibles. I didn't, I didn't pre-look up your page numbers for you. Uh, but if you're following along in your pew Bible, grab that, get ready, grab your own Bible. Uh, scripture's also going to be on the screen. If you're using a, a phone or an iPad or whatever, grab that and be ready. We're wrapping up our series today on how to destroy the church in five easy steps. Again, I don't want you to actually destroy the church. We're just talking about things that will destroy a church if left unchecked. All four of the things we've covered up until now probably all feed into today's. So today's it could have been the first or it could have been the last. I think it fit better at the last because it's kind of like the capstone of everything. It, it, it holds it all together. It kind of explains the other four, and it also explains all of the things we left out because, you know, there's more than five things that can destroy a church. One of the ways and, and probably the best way of all to destroy the church is to outright deny that we have a heart problem. The Bible speaks at great length about what's wrong in our heart. It speaks at great length about what, what Scripture calls a sickness in our heart. The starting point to fixing this problem, and it's a long fix, it's not a quick fix, is to identify what that problem is and then look to see what Scripture says are the solutions the first thing the Bible says about the heart, if we talk about, obviously we're not talking about that, that pumping organ in the middle of our body that moves our blood. We're, we're kind of a juxtaposition between thought, which is like logical thought, the mind and heart, how you feel, uh, how you have desires, things that drive the affections that you have for certain people, certain things, certain habits, certain good things, certain bad things. So when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about that organ pumping blood. We're talking about that seat in our body where the, the, the desire, the feelings live. Look what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9 about the heart. It says, the heart is deceitful Above all things, uh, it's a lot of other things, but above all things, it's deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That word deceit, let's take a look, take a look at the word. It says, uh, deceit is the action or practice of deceiving someone or yourself by concealing or misrepresenting the truth. You see, our heart is highly tuned to self-deception. Did you know that? If you're honest with yourself, let's be honest with ourselves. Do you, do you, did you know your heart is highly tuned to self-deception? We convince ourselves all the time and rationalize ourselves into doing and thinking and acting and behaving in certain ways because our heart is tuned to the practice of deceit. I've been doing a lot of reading in the last week. I've, I'm one author, I'm reading like two or three of her books at the same time, and then I'm reading some other books and I'm kind of one of those, I can never seem to finish a book because I'm always reading like five or ten at the same time. I, I, I like digital books, and I download them on my Kindle app on my iPad, and that's probably why I don't finish a book, because if I had to carry ten books with me, I would probably just carry one book and finish it, put it away, carry another book, finish it. But because I can carry a hundred books with me, I do. I don't read all 100 at the same time, but I'm usually at any one time reading like five or 10 books. So I'm reading this one book this week, actually this one author, 
and see if what she wrote about sin and self-deception sounds like you. It says, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. Anybody? My sin feels like life, plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Is that, does that sound true? My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. That author's name is Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, I'll be quoting a couple other things she and some others wrote today. And I don't often quote a lot of other authors, but this week, the, the things that I've been reading, the, the Scripture that we're reading together out of Luke as a church, and um, the Scripture that, that we have outlined for today, all these things have kind of coincided. Everything in my life's kind of coinciding in this one. It's really interesting. The, the, the reading we're doing as a church, the reading I was preparing for this message, and the books that I just happened to, be, happened to be reading are all coinciding. We know what's right and we know what's wrong from Scripture. We, we, can, we can read Scripture and we can see here's God's outline, here's God's plan, here's what's good, here's what's bad, here's what's evil, here's what's righteous. But if we rely on making choices with our heart, guess what choice we're going to make? More often than not, we will make the wrong choice. Why? The heart is sick. It's deceitful. It's an excuse. I'm sorry, it's, a, uh, it's an idol-making factory. And my mind is an excuse-making factory. The heart is sick because it has a sin problem. Your heart, my heart, our hearts are sick. Genesis 4 talks about it this way. If you'll look with me, I'll give you a second while I turn to it. Genesis 4, 6 and 7 says this about Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you remember, Cain and Abel brought offerings. They brought gifts to the Lord. Abel's was accepted. Cain's wasn't. Cain was upset about it. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's not contrary to what your heart wants, but it's contrary to you. I was reading again this book, and and listen to how, how she unpacks this. She said, God does not take Cain's point of view into account when he rejects his sacrifice. God does not reconsider his position because of Cain's intentions, and we often would like that, wouldn't we? We would love for God to take our intentions into account. Cain wanted God to take his intentions into account, but God did not do that. A sacrifice must bleed in order to count. This bedrock truth can only be apprehended through God's point of view, not my own good intentions. So instead, God rebukes Cain for pouting. Have you ever done that? you ever pouted? Because the Lord said, I don't like this thing you're doing. I want you to change this and you pout. Well, that's not what I meant. Maybe sometimes if you have any relationships with other humans, I hope you do. Maybe a spouse, a parent, uh, a boyfriend, girlfriend, brother, sister, some kind of sibling, some kind of family, relative member. A lot of times we say things and then we come back and and I'm guilty of doing this and we all are. And we say, oh, that's not what I meant. (laughs) We've talked about that before, right? That's not what I meant. That was not my intention. And we talk about intentions. God's not interested in your good intention because to God, the intention doesn't matter. Instead, God rebukes his pounding and he warns him if he does not change, worse things will be in store. 
God proclaims to Cain something vital about the enemy we call sin. It lurks at the entrance to your life. We know that from Scripture. It's prowling, looking to seek and see what it can devour. It knows you and desires you. It has a key to your heart and your affections. You must go to battle with it. And then she adds these two words, every day. I'm going to echo that. You must battle that every day. Sin has the key to your heart. It has the key to your affections. It lurks. Scripture says over and over again, Satan is prowling. He's, he's looking for a way in. He's looking for a chink in the armor. He's looking for a weakness in the wall so that he can come in and wreak havoc. So what is sin? We use that word a lot in church. We throw it around, and, and it's in Scripture. And you may have grown up in other faith backgrounds where, where they said, hey, here's a list of sin. Here's ten sins, or here's five sins, or here's... Um, seven deadly sins. I mean, there's all kinds of things floating out there. But sin at its heart is a deviation from the way of the Father. Anything that deviates from the way of the Father. The Father has laid out in, in, in Scripture and said, here are the, the ways we are to, to live, to act, to, to relate to one another, and to relate to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we do other things besides that, those things are sin. Anything that we think or will to happen outside what the Father says we should will to happen, those things are sin. Another quote, sin is not a mistake. Often we think that, right? Oh, I made a mistake. That was sin. Sin is not a mistake. A mistake is taking a wrong exit on the highway. Sin is treason against a holy God. You ever thought about it that way? We trivialize sin too often. And you would think if anybody wasn't going to trivialize sin, it would be the people of God who are trying to follow God and, and, and give their life to Him and willingly follow His will, right? But we trivialize it. We may, oh, it was just a mistake. I made a mistake. A mistake is a wrong exit on the highway. A mistake is a logical misstep. Sin lurks in our hearts and it grabs us by the throat to do its bidding. You ever felt that? You ever battled? That's the battle that we're talking about, that everyday battle where sin grabs you by the throat to do its bidding, to do its will, to have its way with you. The author and pastor David Platt sums it up this way. If you've ever read David Platt, he's got a couple great books. But it says this, The essence of sin is that man has substituted himself for God. You guys remember, we went through the whole Genesis story and we talked about creation and we talked about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and the unpacked all of that over the course of about seven or eight weeks. That was almost a year ago now. If you, some of you, I, I hope, remember that. The essence of what Adam and Eve did is substitute their own will and desire for the will and desire of the Father. Do you remember that? When he said, don't do this one thing, and they said, well, we're going we're gonna to set ourselves up as our own God by deciding that we can do this even though God said not to. We're going to do it. Man substituted himself for God. But listen to what salvation is. Salvation, the essence of salvation is that God has substituted himself for man. That's the salvation story. Salvation story is that he has substituted himself for man in the form of Christ, in the body of Christ, in the life of Christ. He came and he, he substituted himself for us, for our sin, for our missteps, for our unwillingness, for our, our evil desires. I'm not going to pull any punches today because God didn't pull any punches on me this last week when I was studying this. Um, this, isn't, this isn't the message everybody was like, let's go to church today and we're going to like, woo, yeah. 
Well, I hope, you know, you still could go away feeling, woo. You could. If you get in step with what the Father says is truth and life. There's another principle we need to understand about our hearts, and that is that what comes out of us shows what's really on the inside. I know we talk about this periodically. It's a scriptural principle. It's a principle in technology business. It's, it's a principle in computer programming. Um, if you've ever had anything that glitched or a computer that didn't work right, it was probably due to some kind of programming mistake or error. Because that old term, you know, the old, it's, I don't know, do they still use garbage in, garbage out? Do they still use that term? That was an old term. If you, get, if you write a piece of code and it crashes, well, you put garbage in the code, so that's what you get back. Scripture says something very similar to that in Matthew 15, if you'll look at that with me. Starting in verse 10 of Matthew 15, it says, Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard what you said? Right? I love it. The disciples, did you know that really offended the Pharisees? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? That deceitful, idle factory. This is what defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The religious establishment of that day was more concerned. They were more defined by an appearance of holiness. They had a list of holiness rules. Here are the things you do. Here are the ways you eat. Here are the things you can eat. Here are the things you do before and after you eat. And those are just the eating rules. There were a lot of other rules as well. But the religious establishment of that day was, was concerned with the appearance of holiness. What you did or what you didn't do showed some kind of holiness. But Jesus pointed out here, God doesn't care what you eat. God doesn't care if you wash your hands first. None of that matters to the extent that you take care of the body. I mean, he's not going to say, you know, just get fat, eat whatever you want, drink a lot, smoke, do whatever, let, you know, just let your body go to, 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 to pot. Don't worry about it. And that. We're not talking about that. He wants us to take care of the temple. But he's much less concerned with what we eat as far as it goes with righteousness. In fact, that doesn't lead to righteousness at all. It's not what you eat that matters. It's what's in your heart that matters. It's what we take in that comes out of our mouth and out of our heart. For the most part, the religious establishment of our day, you would think we would have a, a better view of things. We're mostly concerned about the sin of other people. Did, did you know that? If you think about it, as, as Christians, as evangelicals, as Christ followers, a lot, of, 
our, our time and thought about sin goes into those people. Those people who live that way. Those people who think that. Those people who follow that world religion. Those people who do those things. We say things like, hate the sin. You know the other part, right? But love the sinner. We say things like that as Christians. Probably all of you maybe have, have said, at least have, have heard this at some time in your life. By the way, that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. That's just some, somebody made that up. There's a lot of things we say as believers, as Christians, as Christ followers, that sound good but aren't true. We make certain classes of sin worse than others. We make certain people who do certain things worse than others. We exclude certain people caught in certain kind of sin lifestyles from the church and from the body of Christ. We, 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 we do things we shouldn't be doing. We make determinations and judgments that aren't ours to make. There's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus says, love the sinner and hate the sin. In fact, Jesus is saying something quite the opposite if you go to Matthew 7. This one's not on the screen, so you might want to turn there with me. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, it says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but not notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is clearly saying that our position, our, our role, what we're supposed to do as Christ's followers is worry about our own sin. That should be first and foremost on our mind, not what those people do or say or think or believe. God takes care of those people. But so, by the way, you and I are also those people. For the most part, the religious establishment we are in is concerned about the sin of others. I believe Scripture is calling us to circle back and be concerned about our own sin. Follow my logic here. We know from reading Psalm 5 that God hates evil. You can go back to Psalm 5 and read that. God hates evil. From the book of Romans, and, and I'm not going to read the scriptures from all these, but we know that sin is evil. We know that all have sinned. We know the scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that without the intervention of a holy God, we stand eternally separated from God. That happened in the garden. It continues today, and it will continue into the future because of sin. We know those things to be true. We know from Ephesians 5, we are called to be imitators of God. Therefore, logically, if we follow that, because God hates sin, we should also hate sin. The question in the room, why don't you hate your own sin? Why don't I hate my own sin? Why is my sin life to me? Why does it just feel like normal life? If we're called to imitate God, if we're called to, 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 to be real about ourselves, not bury our head in the sand and follow our heart, the world says, follow your heart. How many times have you heard that? Follow your heart. Scripture says exactly the opposite of that, by the way. The heart is an idol factory. Don't follow your heart unless you want to follow it into ruin. 
The logic here is sound. The problem is, especially as, belie- as believers and Christ followers, we, we have no problem hating other people's sin. Do we? We have, we have absolutely no problem with that. It's easy to see. We see it. We hate it. And often by, by connection, at least it seems like we also hate the person, even though we say that phrase, we're supposed to love them. But God did not call us to hate the sin of other people. He called us to hate our own sin. He called us to look at our own sin. He called us to look at our own life. Matthew 7, we read a moment ago. He, remember what he said. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye. Take care of that giant log. There's something massive sticking out of your eye. And we're hating on somebody else and their sin. But we haven't dealt with our own. Instead of the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner, and you probably heard this one, but I propose a new one. Just get rid of that when it's gone. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. That should be our battle cry. Yes, love the sinner. That was right. That part was true. Hate your own sin. Why can't we do that? Why can't we be honest with ourselves? We just muddle through and we, we, we just muddle through our own sin and, and we just live in it and we wallow in it and, and we're like pigs in the mud. We're happy. It's good. All the time casting aspersions on those people who live that way. I can't believe they do that thing. When we're neglecting our own fallenness and our own sin. So the silent question from Matthew 15 is hanging over us. What's in your heart? That's what this all comes down to. Remember I said we were talking about the church can be destroyed by certain things, and we talked about gossip, and we talked about several other ideas, but really all of those are encompassed under this one thing. That's why we don't have 20 or 30 more parts of this message series, because we can hit all of them right now by dealing with our heart. What's in your heart? God's given us a barometer or a thermometer or some kind of tool with which to measure what's in our heart. It's right here. It's this hole in the front of your head that stuff comes out of called words. Yeah, he was yawning. Also, yawns come out. Good job. Now everybody's going to yawn. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, Billy. And screams also come out. God's given us this tool, this barometer, this this thing with which we can judge what's going on in my heart. If we would only listen to ourselves. And you might be able to listen back on yourself from the week prior. If you can remember things you've said, there might be, if you just ask the Lord, Lord, help me review a little bit about some things I said this week. If you can't remember any of those, (laughs) then you can listen to yourself this week and the week after and the week after. Remember, it's an everyday battle. What's in your heart? Because above all, the Lord is looking for Christ followers who are fully committed to Him. In fact, our last part we're going to look at here is what does a fully committed heart look like? Because in 2 Chronicles 16.9, One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth 
to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Did you know the Lord wants to strengthen you, but only to the extent that you are fully committed to him? You have to be fully committed. You have to be all in. Did anybody ever watch the Cubs? I love that. Isn't that, I think that's their hashtag, hashtag all in. That should be the church. Everybody doesn't watch the Cubs, but they should. Sorry, Jordan. <laughs> it's okay. The Sox, they live in Chicago too. It's okay. I'm not going to throw stones at anybody. It's good. We can have two teams in one city. I know all the Cubs fans are like, really? But it's true. We can't. It's all right. We're not having, we're not having sports fights today in the church. <laughs> Maybe those are idols. Ooh. What does a fully committed heart look like? Okay, listen. Commitment is not admitting you've sinned. We talk about and we, we express things in, in Bible studies and in church and in children's classes. And we, we say a lot of things, and the church has said a lot of things throughout history about how to know you can be right with God. And one of the things that we have said in the past is admitting, but I think admitting is too weak. Admitting means to acknowledge a fault, but it carries this idea that it's usually with reluctance. When you admit to something, you're often admitting out of reluctance. I think that the, that the true heart of commitment is found in some churchy words, confession, and repentance. We don't have good non-churchy words for those, so let's talk about it for a minute. To confess something, uh, it's not going to be up there, but I have it written down here. It means to admit or state that one has committed a crime in some way. Often when you are arrested, if you confess to something, they give you a sheet of paper and they say, write your confession, and you hear all the things I did wrong. Then maybe you were reluctant you got caught, <laughs> but you're not reluctant to confess because you want to confess. There's no reluctance in confessing our sin to God. We admit and state that we have committed a fault against the Father. To commit, that word commit means to pledge or bind yourself to something, to someone, to a certain policy, in this case, to be dedicated or bound to God. That other word I mentioned was repentance. We'll talk about it again in a minute, but it simply means turning from the way I am living to a new way of living. It means leaving the old behind and following the new. We started service last week with a confession of our sin. And, and, and again, I led us this morning because it, it occurred to me in the last couple of weeks, kind of going through this series, one of the things the church should do when it's together is confess sin. We should worship, we should celebrate, we should pray, we should do communion, we should eat together, we should listen to the teachings of the apostles. We know all these things, but one of the things we need to do is we need to confess. Corporately, individually, we need to take an opportunity to confess our sin. So that's where we're going to wrap up today with the question, have you come to the place where you're ready to commit your life to Christ? Now, some of you are like, instantly I said that you tuned out because you're like, yeah, I did that. I did that two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever it was. I, I, I've already done that. I committed myself to Christ. I want you to think through this with me again. So don't tune out. Because committing ourselves to Christ that we might be found useful in order that the Father would strengthen us, I think is probably the most important thing we could do today. 
that we could go out of here today knowing we are one with the Father, one with each other, and that He's going to strengthen us to do the task that which He has called us as a church to do, which is share His gospel in this community, to be a lighthouse for this community, to be a place where the 24,000 in Elmwood Park can can hear about a God who wants to know them and love them, a God who loves them so much that He sent His only Son to die in their place, to have a substitutionary death to cover their sin. A lot of them don't know that yet, and we are the ones that are supposed to tell him, tell them, tell our neighbors, tell our friends, tell our enemies. Before we can do that, we have to be absolutely sure that we are fully committed to the Father. Some of you, if I asked the question, are you fully committed to the Father, some of us would probably raise our hands today, and, and you probably are. Some of us who would say we are, maybe on the inside, are like, mm, not really, because we know what's going on in our heart. And some of us would just say no. And, and some of us might say no, even though we know there was a time and a point where we gave ourselves to Christ in full commitment to Him. But since then, the idol factory... And the excuse factory have been churning out lies. And sin has grabbed us by the throat. And we're not living for the Father, but we're living for ourselves. So how do we do this? How do we commit? How do we recommit? How do we renew our commitment to the Father so that we could be strengthened by Him? The first thing we have to do, and I mentioned it a moment ago, is confess. Scripture talks a lot about confession. There's a couple things you need to confess. First, you've got to confess your sin. You've got to be honest. God, I have some sin. Anybody? Just lay it out there. Father, I've got, I've got sin. And, and he knows what it is. And you know what? I, I never really got this, this hate sin thing. But maybe like, like me, you've never really felt that. And I, and I don't know if I'm just catching a cold this week or I ate something, but kind of all week long, my stomach hasn't felt good. And I've kind of felt sick, although I can't put my finger on, I felt anxious. I felt a little sick to my stomach. I don't know why. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking it might have something to do with this because I've been reading and I've been studying and I've been praying and I've been like why why don't I feel sick about my own sin why is my sin just life to me and so I don't know I like I said I'm not trying to over spiritualize it maybe I'm catching a cold I doubt it I don't think so I really I really think it's the other I think I feel sick this week because the father's saying yeah you you should feel sick about your sin here's your sin here's me the, because they don't, they don't fit, that should make you feel sick. And I've just, I've just felt sick. So the first thing we do is we confess that sin. We go to the Father and we say, Father, I've got sin. You know what it is. Maybe you need to name it to him. You need to lay it out. You need to write it out. I don't know what you need to do. Father, here are the things that I know that I'm doing that are against your will. They're against you. They're out of line with your desire. They're out of line with your word, your teaching, Whatever. And we confess those things before him. The other thing we have to do, Scripture says, is confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means he has power over all things, including, ironically, my sin. 
I can't get rid of it myself. I can't stop it myself. Even though we try, we try. If you are exceptionally well um, given to deciding to do something and doing it, some of us could probably overcome some sin just by the sheer power and force of our own stubborn will. But most of us aren't like that. And even if you are able to overcome some sin in your own power, that's not God's power. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord means he has power over those things. The next thing it says is repent. The next thing we need to do is repent. That means literally realizing I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going, I'm, I'm following my heart headlong into disaster while in fact I need to be walking towards the Father and away from disaster. So repentance simply means turning and aiming at the Father. Some of us need to do that today. Scripture says followers of Christ need to repent. (laughs) We fall into sin again. The old man is gone. The new has come. The power of sin is gone as it was before we knew Christ, but sin still has a grip because we live in the world that Satan controls. And he's, he's seeking. He's prowling. He's got the key. He knows where you're weak. He knows where I'm weak. And he's waiting. So we repent. We turn from those things and we turn to the Father. So this morning as we talk about this, refocus your gaze on the Father. I have found this week it's much easier to resist to, to the temptation to do things when my gaze is on the Father. So maybe as much as asking about what's in your heart and, and, and figuring that out by what's coming out of your mouth, also look and see where your gaze is focused. What are you looking at? What's, what are you taking in? What's the thing you do the most? Are, are, you, are you gazing at the Father? Are you looking at the Father? Have you repented? You've looked away from the world towards the Father and you're moving towards Him. The next thing we have to do is believe. It's one thing to confess. It's another thing to repent, but you also have to have faith. Without faith, we can't know the Father. There's always going to be this step. We can unpack the Bible. We can read it. We can study it. We can do theological studies and read commentaries. And we can tear it apart and put it back together. And we can read the Greek and the Hebrew. And we can study all these things. But there's always going to be this point where you have to take a step of faith. Where you have to trust in something other than your own thoughts, your own mind, your own heart, and follow the Father. It always takes a step of faith to believe in your heart. Scripture says that God raised Jesus, his only son, from the dead. That's going to take a step of faith. Then you ask. Maybe you never did that. I don't know. You ask him, literally, Father, will you save me? Father, will you give me uh, a release from the sin that I'm entangled in? Remember, that's a daily battle. That's not a one-time It may even be an hourly battle. It depends on how embroiled you are in the battle. It could be moment by moment. You're doing great. Everything's good. And then all of a sudden, that trigger, and oh, you want to sin. That's the battle. Ask Christ to save you. Ask Christ for help in the moment of the battle. Then, this is important. We have to release. We have to let go. We want to hold on to a little bit which is why we find ourselves embroiled in the same sin over and over again. We don't hate it enough to let it go. 
We don't hate it enough to release our grip on it. We release our grip on our will, on the things that I want to do. We let go of those things. We say, okay, these were things I want. They seemed good. They made me happy. But God said, I have a better way for you. And it doesn't necessarily involve your happiness. (laughs) But God is good. And he has something better than the good we think we can manufacture on our own. So we let go of that thing we think we want or need or have to have. And we gaze at the Father and we follow him and we release that thing. Part of hating your sin and being sick to your stomach about your sin is letting go of it. Releasing it. Then we receive. Um, there's, There's... this gift that God the Father made for you. He, he created for you, and He sent His Son to die for you, and He rose again, and because of that, He has this gift for you. The gift is called salvation. The gift is called, I don't have to live in sin anymore. The, 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 the gift is called, I, I don't have to live with this sickness in my heart dragging me down to the same repetitive sins over and over again. But He's not going to force it on you. not going to force it on you. He created you. He made you in the image of God. He gave you something very special that he didn't give to any of the rest of the created order, and it's called free will. He said, you can choose to make yourself God or make me God. You can make yourself God or you can make me God. I have a gift for you, eternal life in Christ, forgiveness of sin, redemption, release, but to get that, you have to receive it. You have to take it. You have to say, Father, I, want, I, I need that gift. I accept that gift. I receive that gift. Lord, save me. Please save me. I want the gift of your eternal life that you've given me in Christ. And then we get down to that word that we talked about a moment ago, to commit. We commit by binding. Remember the, remember the definition? I'm going to go back and read that. To pledge or bind yourself to somebody or something? Have you bound yourself to the Father? I'm talking, we we talked about casting your gaze on Him, turning away and following Him and looking at Him, but have, have you tied yourself to Him? Have you bound yourself to the Father in such a way that there is no separation, that you you can't be torn away, that you can't be separated? It's only in that kind of commitment. That commitment is in part something that we have to do. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, commit yourself to the Father. He would have said, if you're saved, then it's all taken care of. And don't get me wrong. You're not going to lose your salvation. Your salvation is all taken care of. But it can be rocky between now and whenever your earthly end comes if you live in a way where you're not bound to the Father and you're not committed to Him and you're not casting your gaze upon Him, but you're instead trusting your feelings in your heart. So the Father says, commit your life to Christ and to me. I've done the easy work of talking about it. The hard work is in your hands now. And I, I've been, honestly, this morning was sitting in my office and I'm like, I don't quite know really how to end this time together today. We could sing a song and go home and everybody be like, yeah, that was a great message. We could ask everybody to come down in front and pray. We could pray where you're at. I feel like something more than just singing a song right now is appropriate. 
Because I feel like this is, we've, we've been here a little over a year now, and I feel like we've, we've come a long way as a church. We've come a long way as a people in turning our gaze up to the community around us. But I want us to even further our gaze raising, if you will, to the Father. And see, what does He say about me? What does He say about my heart today? What does He say about my followship, if you will, the quality of my following. Am I truly committed? Am I truly His? Am I what you would call sold out? Am I all in? I mean, you could throw a whole lot of quirky, trite phrases out here. Whichever one lands with you, He calls us to hate our own sin. We're getting better as a church at loving the sinner, loving the people that are outside of his kingdom. We need to get better at the first part. Because if we're honest with ourselves, you know, James talks about it. We're kind of a lot of times like that on the waves, tossed to and fro by the winds of media and politics and trends. What people say is right was wrong, and now what is wrong is right. And all of these things, we're just kind of buying into them instead of listening to the Father and placing our gaze on Him and being 100% fixed on Him and sold out to Him. So I, th- I, I, think, I think what we need to do is maybe all of those things that I said. <laughs> maybe some of you just want to pray where you're at. Maybe some of you want to come up at the front and pray. If that, if that holds something for you, if there's some meaning there, reason to come down to the front or go in front of the cross, uh, whatever that whatever that that you feel like you need to do before the Father, maybe you need to get up and leave the room and go somewhere else and sit by yourself and pray. Maybe you need to grab a friend in this room and say, hey, go pray with me. But I think we need to take a couple minutes as a church and as individuals to go before the Father and ask Him, why don't we hate our sin enough? And maybe He'll give you a sick stomach for a week. I don't know. He might. But maybe we'll finally be on the road to having our hearts fully committed to Him. And when our hearts are fully committed to Him, He can do amazing things. Look at the guys that He used in Scripture, how messed up and broken they all were. Paul, the 12 minus the 1 plus the new one. Uh, Solomon and David. Abraham. I mean, guys that they made mistakes and they slipped and they fell back and they regressed, but they, I think they were guys that were sick about their own sin. I know Paul was. Paul, man, and Paul had a ton of sin. He, he laid them all out. Here's all the things I've done. I've had Christians killed. I, I've done all these terrible things. And then Christ got a hold of me, and that, over, that overcame all of that other stuff I thought was right, that I felt was good. 
And, and now we read books that he wrote to the churches. He can do that with us as well. So I'm just going to, I don't know, I think we just should take some time. Um, we'll sing in a few minutes if we feel like we want to sing at the end. <laughs> but I think we just need to take some time and pray. You may, like I said, you may want to come up here. You may want to grab a friend. You may want to leave the room. Uh, you may want to uh, just pray where you're seated. Um, but let's take some time and go before the Father and ask him to make these things we talked about today real in our own lives.